0: Nick Gulas promoter, presents Championship Wrestling at the Madison County Coliseum, Friday, November 7th at 8.05 p.m. See one of the nation's top TV wrestling stars when Tommy Rich meets Joe Hamilton in the main event match. See the real animal, 700-pound wrestling bear, Gentleman Ben versus Terry Adonis, and two of the nation's top midget wrestling stars meet when Little Bruiser goes against Tiny Rowe. plus two other big events. That's Championship Wrestling, Friday, November 7th at 8.05 p.m. Advanced ringside tickets are $5 and on sale at the Madison County Coliseum
1: now. Hey everybody, it is me, Alex. I just wanted to say something super quick as a note. This episode is about Nick Gulas, which may be pronounced as Nick Goulas, based on every recording I've heard, though throughout the episode I refer to him as Gulas. Uh, this is because uh two things. I'm a Yankee. <laughs> First of all, and second of all, um I am not versed in wrestling and I talk about this quite a bit throughout this episode. And so, I was really kind of focused on a uh, better understanding Nick as a person and a figure uh, and, and in order to do so, I gave some background on wrestling, but I talk a lot about wrestling in this episode and I know very little about wrestling. I tried to do the best that I could. Some facts might be oversimplified, some regions might be jammed together in talking about this. This episode took me three weeks to put together because there's so much information out in the world about wrestling, about this era of wrestling, about all areas of wrestling. It is a complicated, amazing, multi-layered, multifaceted, rich sport, form of entertainment, all of the above. And there are just many podcasts about this. There are many pieces of history. There are many YouTube videos there. There's so much about this out in the world. And there's so many people who were involved when it was happening, talking about what wrestling used to be, what it is now and on and on. And so I would strongly encourage you to not take this episode <laughs> as gospel about what Nashville and mid-American wrestling looked like from the late 1940s through 1980. I tried to do my best to honor the truth and I did everything I could in order to to paint a picture of Nick Goulas, but you might, if you are someone who is there and someone who cares and someone who pays extra attention to all these things, notice of factual inaccuracy or two. And I promise it was an accident. I tried to do my best, but I'm saying that because I know people who love wrestling, love wrestling. And I don't want you to think I'm trying to disrespect the whole scene. I don't want you to think I am intentionally misleading anybody, but honestly, if you want to know more about wrestling, there are some phenomenal podcasts out there. There is a booking Memphis wrestling, which is one very, very specific to this area. Jerry Lawler, uh, who we mentioned in this episode, he has his own podcast. There are many podcasts out in the world. I've listened to a handful of them. They're all intriguing. So I just want to put that out there to start this up with. Anyway, that's my super quick disclaimer. It wasn't even quick. But I just wanted to let you know. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Let's get on to Nick. Where does one begin with Nick Gulas? How about here? By January of 1944, Nick Gulas had been in Nashville for just under five years promoting light heavyweight wrestling. He was a Birmingham, Alabama native, the son of Greek immigrants. He was one of nine children. He'd had a little luck promoting wrestling around Birmingham and eventually went to Florida before deciding to come to Nashville. He was told it wouldn't work. The city wouldn't go for what he had to sell and there wouldn't be an audience, but the naysayers were wrong. He was pulling three to four thousand dollars a gate, the equivalent of about sixty thousand dollars today. He started to make some money in a name. So when he went to the Navy in nineteen forty one, it was a newsworthy event. A guy people knew was going into the Navy and made the Tennessean. His wife, Catherine, helped to run the show while he was gone. She handled the money, and others promoted. Just over 40 years later, in 1985, when, after a long illness, Catherine passed away, among the pallbearers at her funeral were Sheriff Fate Thomas and Mayor Richard Fulton. The Gulases had, over the previous decades, become substantial forces in the city. The kind of names the mayor and the notorious and flamboyant chief of police would be pallbearers for. And why wouldn't they be? According to Gulas, he created television wrestling. He didn't, of course, but he sure as hell made some good money off of it. This is I Should Tell You Nashville Demystified, and I am your host, Alex Steed. Nashville Demystified is a show in which I get to know the town better. It's brought to you by Mac Factory, a video and content production firm, and by We Own This Town, a podcast network by Nashvilleians. We're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. It would be great if you'd follow us there and if you'd share the show with your friends and like and rate and subscribe and do all the things that help people know that this exists. Before we proceed with Goulas, I should ask how you all have been out there. That's obviously a rhetorical question, but I know it has been, and I don't need to tell you this, it's been rocky out there. First, the tornado and then COVID and then... We pretended that COVID didn't exist, I guess, and then it was back because it never went away. We never really dealt with it. And then a good deal of social upheaval, responding to social inequities, and as they say, civic unrest. The governor and the legislature have gone rogue. The president has turned on us. I want to say that I'm thinking of you. And I hope that you are taking care of yourselves and you're taking care of each other as much as you have the capacity to do. I hope that you're maintaining your sanity however you're able. And I hope that you're fighting this fucking bullshit any way that you are able to or know how. Black lives matter and women's bodies are their own business, end of story. All right, that's enough on that. Just know I'm here and I am thinking of you all the time. And this is a weird time, (laughs) but it's also the time for us to get back to Nicholas.
0: And Tommy Gilbert now in the ring here at Nashville, Tennessee, at the fairgrounds before a sellout crowd, a capacity crowd to witness an outstanding match in process here between Tommy Gilbert, his partner, Jimmy Golden, against the man they call Crazy Luke Ram, the big blonde-headed wrestler now, whipped him to the turnbuckle, hits it hard, Gilbert in on him.
1: You know, I hadn't actually heard of Nick Gulas prior to moving to Nashville. And believe it or not, it was via David Berman of the Silver Jews that I found out. When Berman passed, I spent a lot of time reading his blog. We have an episode centered on exactly that and a zine as well. Nashville Demas only zine. If you didn't get your hands on one, let me know. I'll get one for you. I'll send it to you. There are a series of entries in Berman's blog, which is his blog. It's called Menthol Mountains. In the series of entries, there are five in total. They're called Yard Sale Jackpot. It featured a number of promotional and candid photos of wrestling and wrestlers from the 60s and 70s. Of this hall, Berman wrote
0: Once I was the early bird in the sodden basement of a shabby estate sale in West Nashville. Around the turn of the century, I came upon the internal files of Gulas Welch Wrestling Enterprises Incorporated for sale for pennies on the pound. The story of how this strange-beaked skin flint lost control of his regional wrestling circuit is one of grease and betrayal in an age of rampant scoundrelism and lurid rascality. It was a time when pro wrestlers could best be contacted via mother-in-law. Agency Rolodexes were bristling with Herbs and Jerrys, and regicide was legal in the state of Tennessee.
1: That, quickly, was Carolyn Kendrick reading... David Berman talking about Gulas Welch Enterprises. I won't pretend to be able to offer a robust or comprehensive telling of the history of wrestling in Nashville, though I'll offer some highlights. I'm originally from Maine, and all I ever knew growing up was national televised wrestling. The furthest back my memory goes was to when Hulk Hogan was everywhere on television and in the movies, and a handful of the characters to which he was related. I kind of knew them. I knew there was Hulk Hogan and other guys. And eventually I knew there was Macho Man Randy Savage <laughs> and Ric Flair. I remember these people. These were the names I remember. Just keeping up with the limited acronym that would pop up in these nationally televised events, WWF for World Wrestling Federation, and then WWE for World Wrestling Entertainment, same company, just different name. And because I was a kid and only tangentially interested and in, by that, I mean, I just wasn't interested for some reason. I'm not Quite sure why or what what that was about, but I didn't realize that the wrestlers I saw on television and the company that they represented again, then WWF, had stemmed from this what was once a large regional network of wrestling outfits and in regions and areas and territories. (laughs) It was it was quite substantial, and that WWF had become what it was because it had achieved this sort of corporate dominance and that came out of decades of evolution of the national wrestling scene that WWF had previously been WWWF was something I didn't know it was the World Wide wrestling federation and before that in the 1950s it was capital wrestling federation which was run by Vincent J. McMahon father of the Vincent McMahon that we know today Vince McMahon that we know today I didn't realize that there were so many regions like these and that Vince McMahon Jr. did not create modern wrestling, which is something I kind of thought in, in ways he did. I mean, he created the wrestling that we know today as we know it today, especially in the late 80s and in, through the 90s. I did not know that the ascent of what we know as modern wrestling, which saw a boom by way of WWF and Hulk Hogan and the whole glow thing in the 80s, it didn't come out of nowhere. Like I said, it come out of countless local leagues and jurisdictions, and that Nick Gulas, along with his business partner Jack Welch, under the banner of Gulas Welch Wrestling Enterprises, were essentially the kings of wrestling in Nashville and Memphis. I didn't realize that the earliest indication of wrestling taking place in Nashville goes back to a match that was held at the Ryman in nineteen oh seven. That does not really factor into the uh, story of Nick Gulas, but it's worth mentioning. Who knew?
2: Smith ...South Coliseum, where we are five minutes into an unbelievable match, a Mississippi chain match with Buddy the Father and Robert the Son going against Johnny Gray and Bill Dundee. George Barnes, the Australian co-champion with Bill Dundee, who was scheduled to be in this bout tonight, was not permitted to wrestle due to a high fever and an increase of blood pressure. John Gray from Australia taking his place, and it has been absolutely one wild melee since it began.
1: All right, so as wrestling goes, and this was particularly the case back when things were more regional, There are styles, and one of the styles is the Southern Style, which is what was practiced and cultivated here in Nashville and over in Memphis and the surrounding region. In this case, we're talking wrestling, which is light on W's and G's, (laughs) evidently. (laughs) And it is made distinct by an emphasis on kayfabe. In other words, this is part of a constructed storyline. Upon its introduction, this was evidently novel. There is a famous story about Gulas in which he was putting on a match, but a bunch of bad weather was coming, and the Tennessee and was not going to be able to make it to cover the event. No worries, Gulas assured, I can already tell you the outcomes. Further with its reliance on kayfabe, the Southern style was especially dramatic. It was noted for the role of heels, who were basically assholes that would act like over-the-top assholes by stalling, being cowards, pretending to assault women in the unassuming. And these storylines would run on for months or even years. People would come back to see feuds and keep up with their favorite characters. Memphis and Nashville are particularly well-known for the style, and it defines the region at large. So here's something that wrestling legend Jim Cornette had said about what wrestling in Tennessee looked like generally. He said, From the start, Tennessee wrestling was different in that promoters made their own stars instead of relying on already nationally known names. One reason for this may have been Gulas's notorious penny pinching when it came to paying talent. We'll get into that later. This is me, Alex, speaking, not a cornet. Back to cornet. But the Tennessee style was always about personal issues and wild brawls in the main events, and Gulas and Welch always used wrestlers who could carry out that vision. If they got over, which means if they kind of became wrestlers that people enjoyed, they stayed over, and their long area histories were hammered into the fans' heads. People were into the athleticism, sure, but they were also into the showmanship, the drama, the stories. Gulas got to Nashville in 1939, but he got his start in wrestling much earlier. Back in his hometown of Birmingham in 1931, he was 17. He was making just over a dollar an hour at a bakery, and he'd caught wind of a fellow Greek named Chris Jordan who'd been promoting wrestling. Jordan talked Gulas into selling tickets and, seeing promise in the teenager, he told him that he'd show him the proverbial ropes. Gulas' mother thought that he was crazy and implored him to keep the job at the bakery, where at least he'd get to take home figurative and literal bread. Gulas had also been playing baseball on the teams in his area, but he was hooked on wrestling. Come 1938, his mentor Jordan died, and Gulas found that he wasn't able to get along with the management of the new company, and he headed to Nashville with $80 in his pocket, which was about the equivalent of $1,000 today. Gulas spent his first few years in the city before the war establishing himself. He busted one of the top promoters by booking wrestlers and big bands at the Hippodrome, a roller rink and venue that used to be over by Vanderbilt. He'd also promote matches for veterans. They were taking in between three and $4,000 a gate before he went to the Navy in 1942, when again, his wife Catherine handled the money and other promoters helped to organize the events. By the way, I should say, I really wanted to feature more of Catherine in here, but there isn't a lot about her in the news. Outside of the information about her helping to run things when the war was taking place and information about her death and a couple other mentions here and there in the news, there is not a ton of information about Catherine, who seems like she was essential to the Gulas enterprise. When Nick got out of the Navy, he said, he wanted to promote big. And that's exactly what he did. So the end of the 1940s comes along and Gulas teams up with Roy Welch, who born in 1902, was a decade and a half older than Gulas, and he was also, as far as regional wrestling goes, royalty. Roy's dad, Ed, was a Cherokee who lived in Oklahoma, and five of his seven children would become involved with pro wrestling. He taught the boys the sport, and Roy, the eldest, made his way to Texas, where he trained and then toured around as a light heavyweight champion he would also serve as a handler of Miss Ginger, a wrestling bear, <laughs> while establishing himself in Tennessee, which is when he comes to team with Gulas and they form the Gulas Welch Wrestling Enterprises. Welch and Gulas had teamed up right around the same time the National Wrestling Alliance was formed. The NWA, (laughs) which for a person born in the 80s who likes rap music, (laughs) is the perfect acronym for a wrestling organization from the 1940s. It was a professional wrestling promotion governing body that was founded in 1948, and the heads of the organization were essentially the board of directors, which were the people who operated the territory systems in their respective areas. this whole organization sanctioned championships and recognized a world champion. So before the 1960s, it was the sole governing body in professional wrestling and throughout the following decade, it would keep just being big. It represented various regions, one of which was the NWA Mid-Atlantic Territory, which was ultimately overseen by Gulas and Welch starting in 1949. It was pretty incredible. These guys were like, we're going to get into wrestling together. We're going to consult consolidate our work in our markets. And then they came in no time at all to represent the biggest territory in the national organization that focused on wrestling, professional wrestling, as uh, we knew it then. The Gulas welch territory spread rapidly and in all directions through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Gulas and Welch focused primarily on promoting shows in Memphis and Nashville. But Through a series of partnerships, consolidations, and coups, they came to have their hands in Chattanooga, Knoxville, Jackson, Louisville, Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky, uh, Bowling Green, and Goulas' hometown of Birmingham, in Mississippi, in Ohio, West Virginia, and Missouri. Georgia and North Carolina, at the operations peak, Gulas would oversee matches in 48 cities. In the 1950s and the 1960s, Nashville exploded with charismatic figures like Sputnik Monroe, which is just the best wrestling name I've ever heard. Sputnik Monroe. And he was, by the way, a wrestler who would get arrested for frequenting black taverns where he'd go to see his fans. <laughs> There are newspaper articles about him getting arrested for going to black taverns uh, because that, that violated orders of the time. Um, there were wrestlers like the Fabulous Fargos. There was Tojo Yamamoto and heel manager Saul Wangaroff. Later on would come Jerry the King Lawler, who got his start by being a super fan and who would draw pictures of his favorite wrestlers. This is how he got noticed. He drew pictures of his favorite wrestlers. Jerry Lawler did, and that's how he got into the game.
2: Lance Russell once again from the Memphis Mid-South Coliseum, where we have just had the opening bell for a tag match. Pitting the big team of Big Al Green at 255 and his partner at 264, Phil Hickerson, in there against the combined efforts of Jackie Fargo in the ring with Hickerson right now, and his partner, the Honorable Imperial Japanese wrestler Tojo Yamamoto.
1: These folks were celebrities in their territories, and they brought in solid money, and they were loved. Or affectionately hated for years, sometimes decades, for keeping their roles going in the public eye. Nashville was early to the party for TV wrestling as well. Short network wrestling shows aired there in the 1950s, but there was live local studio wrestling in Nashville starting in 1955. The program was such a hit that it expanded to two hours every Saturday night and became a local institution. And also we've talked about syndication on this show before, uh, with regard to the CMT and hee-haw, <laughs> but before wrestling had become the kind of WWF thing that we know now where there was, there were matches that happened in one place and were beamed all over the country back when syndication was bigger and there were a number of channels that needed programming people would buy programming from one place elsewhere. So there would be a match, say, in Nashville, and then that match would be aired over, say, in Alabama. And that would happen through a particular region, not necessarily on a national stage. And so a lot of that was happening in Nashville as well. And that is what was expanding the popularity in the mid-America region. Wrestling, according to Gulas, is a combination of sports and entertainment. It's showmanship, and showmanship has always been a big part of sports. There's no sport today that does not involve showmanship, and professional wrestlers are the top showmen. Gulas loved the wild times. One time he said Roy Welch, his partner, told him that they had a flat while they were driving to one of the matches. So Gulas gets out of the car to fix it, and Roy, a practical joker, drove off. So Gulas just had to walk down the road. He gets a mile down and finds that Welch had gotten as far before he hit a cow and he uh, totaled the car. (laughs) I love that story. Not because I like that a cow got hurt. That is sad. But I like that this old man that he worked with just left him on the side of the road pretending that he had a flat Practical jokes were a big deal back at this time, back before TikTok. Uh, Practical jokes were huge. I actually have this book of practical jokes that took place in Nashville that I'm looking at potentially doing an episode on. But uh, you should just know that when we were bored and didn't have phones to look at all the time, we were just playing jokes on each other left and right, hither and yon. Another time, Gulas once recounted at the Hippodrome... The crowd got so angry at Pat Malone, who was a wrestler who went by the name of The Green Shadow, a very popular wrestler. People got so mad, they stormed the dressing room. Baby Ray, one of the wrestlers, grabbed a piece of something to beat them back with. It was like a, like a, a part of the bathroom floor, <laughs> which, which I have a lot of questions about. But the cops eventually came. And Malone took out a pocket knife and started swinging to keep people back. He was clearly fearful and did not do any damage to the public, but he nearly cut off his own thumb. And finally, the crowd was broken up and uh, the mob held back. This is the life that Nick Gulas centered himself on and made a lot of money with. In 1963, Gulas helped introduce integrated wrestling to Birmingham. It was then Bull Connor's town. Uh, Bull Connor, we can say now, (laughs) with a little exaggeration, was not an integrationist. There was Alex Perez and Tojo Yamamoto on the ticket, and they were against Don Carson and Bearcat Brown. Bearcat Brown was black. Gulas says he loved Bearcat like a brother. And they turned away 5,000 people that night, which is a thing Gulas says a lot. Uh, not only was the auditorium sold out, they turned away the equivalent of the amount of people that were in the auditorium, which would suggest 10,000 people came out to see the show that night. I don't know if it's true. I mean, Gulas is a showman, but that's, that's it says a lot that it was sold out in the first place. And Gulas says the crowd loved it. But under a month later, Connor, a fucking bigot, padlocked the auditorium, In Birmingham went without the sport until the Civil Rights Act was passed. Throughout this time, Gulas's star would rise in the city. By the end of the 1960s, the Hippodrome shut down, and Goulas and Welch moved their regular Wednesday night shows over to the old Coliseum at the fairgrounds, which had been standing since 1922. According to some wonderful reporting by the unmatched J.R. Lind that ran in the scene last year, by the time Goulas and Welch were putting 5,000 people into the Coliseum every week, it had been deemed a, quote, dangerous fire trap by a metro review of structural safety. A fire, starting either in the bleacher area or the storage rooms, would be transmitted in minutes to the roof, the report stated. With crowded exits possibly blocked by flames, it is difficult to predict anything other than a major disaster Were the Coliseum occupied. By the end of the 1960s, they were putting 5,000 people a week into the Colosseum, which was deemed a dangerous fire trap. In so many ways, the 20th century just seems like it was 5,000 years ago. And in a lot of ways, it seems like it is basically exactly right now. It seems crazy that they would do this, but a lot of things (laughs) seem crazy. (laughs) When you truly look at them, like ignoring a virus. In the words of Lind, Nonetheless, the shows went on undeterred, the old building groaning to capacity week after week. Come 1970, the fire finally came and a hundred foot flames ran through the Coliseum and it took it down in under an hour. Fortunately, nobody was killed. As the city and fairgrounds regrouped to figure out a plan to rebuild, Gulas and Welch would hold events at the Father Ryan High School Gymnasium or at whatever venue could accommodate. And finally, nearly a decade after the fire, the Fairgrounds had built a forty two hundred seat facility that would open its doors in 1979. It received quite a bit of financing from Gulas himself. It would eventually be named the Nick Gulas Sports Arena after his death in 1991, and it would see its final wrestling match last year on June 1st. The buildings on site are being retired to make room for the forthcoming Major League Soccer Stadium. Gulas's matches drew audiences both to the hippodrome and the fairgrounds, and then also all of the interim venues in between and to the television, most importantly. Syndicated matches enjoyed some of the highest ratings throughout the 70s. Again, throughout the 50s and 60s, the NWA was huge. It was unmatched, it was not competed with. The Gulas in Welch Mid America territory was the largest in NWA. And there were a handful of splits and defections in the 60s, the most notably uh, by Vincent McMahon Sr., uh, who left with his own organization and created his own thing, started to create his own thing, which would birth the thing that would birth the thing that would birth the thing (laughs) that would create WWF eventually under his son's reign, I should say. But While the NWA was around in its first several decades, it was the big deal despite a handful of uh, defections. And it was such a big deal that it created situations where wrestlers and other people working in the industry felt like they weren't getting their due either creatively or financially or by way of recognition or whatever. You know, this thing was so big that it had its own rules and it was hard to do other things within that. Now, according to a book intriguingly titled Chokehold Pro Wrestling's Real Mayhem Outside the Ring, there was also real corruption. It wasn't just rumors of corruption. This book suggests, there are reports, that Gulas and Welch were engaged in a controversy, including the payoff of $5,000 to Estes Kaffofer, who was a Tennessee senator known for his anti corruption. Committee on Organized Crime and Interstate Commerce. In addition to this, an employee had testified of the experience of feeling that Welch and Gulas had conspired to undercut his career as an independent promoter in Kentucky. In this former employee's testimony, he talked about how Gulas and Welch would substitute wrestlers at the last minute than those wrestlers that were advertised. This was designed to get people frustrated at the promoter. and Gulas and Welch told their wrestlers to destroy this promoter's towns. I don't understand technically how that happens. We don't need to go there. But these are accusations that were being made. Ten years later, the scorned employee was re-interviewed by a Justice Department investigator who wanted to convene a grand jury proceeding around Gulas and Welch, but that never came to fruition. Professional wrestling, I should say, and this is one of my favorite asides, (laughs) in this whole story, Uh, professional wrestling became Hatch show prints bread and butter uh, throughout this whole NWA dominance phase because Nick Gulas leaned heavily on Hatch to print the show posters that promoted the Mid-America Division shows, which were all throughout Tennessee, Kentucky, Alabama, et cetera. Uh, And Hatch printed show posters for all of the Southern and Mid-America bouts, which amounted for a lot of their business. That is, regular posters every week for decades. And Hatch mentions that in their book. It was so important to their being, it is in the story of their success. By the second half of the decade, Gulas's star was beginning to dull. He'd established a reputation for a tough schedule and having bad payoffs as far as some of the wrestlers were concerned. Although it is noted that a handful of the wrestlers, not the top tier earners, but like middle tier earners, throughout some of their streaks were making up to $4,000 a week. I don't know how regularly that was. I don't know what that came out to be per year. There's not a lot of information on who was getting paid what. But some people complained and some people were getting more money than they would in other contexts. However... There was also these competition offshoots or competitive offshoots that had begun to show themselves here and there in the 60s. Most notably, there was one overseen by Vince McMahon Sr. in 1962, but there were others that were emerging. And by the 70s, it was becoming clear to enterprising folks who felt disaffected by what was going on within NWA that there could be something outside of the NWA. And Gulas didn't really take this seriously at first. He was asked about some competitive offshoots that would present themselves in the uh, early to mid 70s. And, you know, he basically said there's only one Opry in town and I am the Opry of wrestling. And, you know, if you want to go see some music and you want to see some talent, you go to the Opry. Uh, You can go see other stuff if you want, but you always come back to the Opry. And the same thing with regard to Gulas's wrestling operation. He just didn't take it seriously also by the middle of the decade Welch Roy Welch had started to decline in health he was 70 by 1972 he'd be dead before the end of the decade and as his health began to slip Gulas was leaning heavily on the aid of Christine Teeny Jarrett he needed help to run this massive operation his partner was ailing and Christine Jarrett was around and Christine Teeny (laughs) or I think Ms. Jarrett if people were terrified of her (laughs) Some people were. Sometimes she didn't like cussing. (laughs) She's considered by many to be one of the most influential women in wrestling history. She had begun selling tickets for gulas. In the 1940s, she was working for Gulas and Welch after that, and she was helping with various elements of the operations for years. She'd gotten divorced in the late 1940s, not long after her son Jerry was born, and she got into the wrestling game to take care of her family. I mean, she's very much in ways that Gulas is an American dream type 20th century story. Uh, Teeny Jarrett is as well. And maybe we'll do a show on her someday soon. Actually, I hope we do. And when Welch was sick, Teenie, Christine, Teenie, (laughs) love that name, was given more responsibility and by the early 70s, she was promoting shows on behalf of the operation in the region. Now, Jerry, her son, so Jerry Jarrett is Christine's son, and he would get involved super young. By age seven, I heard in an interview, he said he was selling programs for Gulas and Welch. And by age fifteen, he'd gotten a provisional license so he could run errands for the operation. He'd been in the game since he was a kid. I mean, he he I, I heard that Christine Teeny was selling tickets with an infant Jarrett by her side. <laughs> <laughs> Some means of of uh, uh, getting people to be sympathetic and to buy tickets. I mean, she was a good showman too, uh, show woman. So by the 70s, the younger Jarrett is in his 30s, and he was essentially running part of the Gulas welch territory while his mother was doing the same. He was given a larger swath. He was uh, put in charge of Memphis, Louisville, Lexington, and Evansville, while uh, Gulas was overseeing the Nashville region. And even though this had happened, still that territory was technically under NWA's Middle America watch, and technically it was under a Roy Gulas Enterprise, but... The Jarretts started to have a little more power within the organization, within the enterprise. And then this other thing started to happen. There is the issue of Gulas's son, George. So George Gulas, I really, <laughs> George Gulas's story is one I also want to know kind of more about. Because George was born in 1949, and in the birth announcement in the Tennessean, Nick referred to him as Nick's quote new champion. So Nick has a son and he's like, I have a new champion. And five years later in the society section of the Tennessean, a note is offered without context. I I don't know like what part of the paper this was, but there's just like a list of like anecdotes. And one is about little Georgie Gulas, who at this point, five years old, who was asked if he wanted to be a wrestler when he grew up, like, you know, and be in the parents' business. And he said, no, he wanted to be a cowboy. And then 20 years later, the younger Gulas' dream of becoming a cowboy must have faded. And his father had pushed him into the family business of wrestling by being a wrestler. Georgie Gulas, pro wrestler.
0: Hurt, Jimmy Goldstein, another wrestler, George gulas George Gulas has hit the ring away at both men. knocks Down Duffy down. It's Duffy again. Luke Graham. Luke Graham tearing at the clothes. Tearing at the clothes of George Goulis. Ripping away at the man's clothes. They temporarily have stopped him. And Duffy and Graham down on the mat have torn the clothes of George Duffy. His pants have been ripped. George has been dropped with a right to the chin. George, his shirt now being torn off of him as Duffy pounds away on George Gulas, who had come to the ring. George blasting away now, right some
1: left. And by all accounts, George Gulas wasn't good. He just wasn't a good wrestler. However, he kept showing up in the matches and he was supposed to win matches that it didn't make any sense for him to win. And, uh, you know, people were already upset about Nick's Penny, penny pinching, (laughs) they were upset about his scheduling. And now he was pushing his son to win matches that it didn't make sense uh, for him to win. And people were pissed. And this led to a split that would occur, taking the organization down with it. Jerry Jarrett was gaining more control of the region as Welch was sick and he would eventually create Continental Wrestling Association that would house his new territory. There are a lot of details regarding Gulas's bad faith attempts to sell Jarrett options on the region that led to all this. And there is all of the drama of wrestlers and Jarrett himself feeling resentment towards Gulas's is pushing Georgie into positions that they felt he didn't earn. By the way, he didn't go by Georgie. The paper called him that once and I can't get it out of my head. Uh, but what you really need to know is this ultimately by the mid 1970s, Gulas was on top of the game. He held the biggest region in the NWA. And by 1980, Jarrett's new operation, CWA, had swallowed up much of what once belonged to Gulas. So, with Welch gone and increasing competition in the market, namely the Jarretts and the eventual ascent of the WWF, Nick Gulas got out of the game more or less in 1980. His wife, Catherine, was sick for years. And when she finally went, Nick and George saw it as a blessing because she was ailing for so long and she was in such a bad way. And that's where the Gulases found themselves by the middle of the 80s. As I said up top, the Gulases had established such a name and reputation for themselves in town, even with the sort of dulling of Nick's star throughout the late 70s, that they were the sort of people that politicians and local political bosses served as pallbearers for. Goulas oscillated between retirement and semi-retirement through the 1980s. Throughout his career and into his retirement, Goulas was extraordinarily active in the Greek Orthodox Church. He was elected president of the parish council in 1957 and re-elected seven times. A lot of the money for renovations that went into the church came from Goulas himself He was named an archon, or maybe an archon. I'm sorry, I'm not a member of the Greek Orthodox Church. This is a new term to me, but it's the highest honor for a lay person, which Goulas characterizes the next thing to a priest and, quote, a hell of an honor. (laughs) Which I love so much is exactly a thing my father would say. An employee who worked for him, and I'm pretty sure this was Christine Tini Jarrett, who was quoted as saying this in a Tennessean profile that came out in the mid-70s, she said that he had a heart bigger than a building and that all around he's a good human being. Throughout the 80s, he would support various causes like the Lady Raiders at MTSU. He donated to them money to get championship rings and was also, I think, kind of a mentor to the team along with, uh, with George Gulas, which is a, a fascinating development. And it seemed like he supported athletic causes throughout that decade and the preceding ones as well. Nick Gulas died in 1991, and when he did, the arena at the fairgrounds was renamed in his honor. It showcased wrestling until June 1st of last year. After a number of consolidations, the WWF, eventually the WWE, would turn professional wrestling into a worldwide phenomenon and itself become synonymous with the very concept of pro wrestling. Vince McMahon, an incredibly successful and profoundly flawed and problematic human being, <laughs> would turn it into a billion-dollar phenomenon by the end of that decade. He himself is actually purported to be worth uh, over a billion dollars. It can't be ignored, though, that McMahon did this by building what he created upon a foundation established by giants, and one of those giants was Nashville's own Nick Gulas. <laughs> All right, everybody, that's it for our show. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can check out the website for National Demystified to find any show notes or information or links to articles that we sourced in this particular episode. I want to thank Cameron Davidson, who is our sound person, who makes everything sound good and puts everything together at the end. I want to especially congratulate uh, Cameron and his wife for bringing a new baby into the world. Congratulations, you too. Uh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that good people are out there bringing new ones into the world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy for you, buddy. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Tune in next time. I don't know what the next episode's about. We've got a lot of subjects coming together. Uh, soon, I hope we'll dive back into Music City Tales from the 1980s. This was supposed to be a Music City Tales from the 1980s until I realized that Goulas had retired fully almost by 1980. <laughs> so, near miss. Somehow I, uh, I didn't catch that. All right. I am grateful to and for you. And I I look forward to us connecting again soon.